So really do uh, want to just uh, encourage all of us to listen for what the Lord might want to say. Uh, we're in this new series, calling it Spark, and Spark has to do is this whole idea when faith, you know, starts coming alive, when faith comes alive. And so like when God stirs things in us, when something is, is shifting around and we sense that we're being called into a new season. And so I want to, you know, in my, my little contribution here is that this is going to take us through the early part of the summer and these next couple of months, and we're going to be hearing from other pastors and different speakers. But I wanted to take these first two weeks, and this is the second part, and focus on, in particular, an obscure um, man, actually, in the Older Testament. We introduced him last week. His name is Jabez. Uh, he's not often talk about, talked about. The book that he's found in is the first, is first Chronicles. It's, an, again, an obscure Old Testament book that's not usually read. In fact, if you were to read First Chronicles, some, usually someone only does it when they're kind of reading through the Bible. And you have this opening chapter and chapters, about nine of them, it's just genealogies. And uh, it, it frequently is just something that someone might skim past because it's just referring to someone who had a child and they had a son and they had it, and it just goes on and on like that. Someone begat someone and you have all these names and, and none of them seem to really have any real connection. They're real people, but uh, it doesn't really connect. It's sort of like walking in, in a graveyard, we mentioned. You, you see names, but what do they mean necessarily? But what happens is in this listing of names, we mentioned this, all of a sudden there's like a little bit of an opening it's like something is written about one of those names that catches our attention. And to an extent that it, it almost, almost requires us to really think about, wow, this person must have had something unique happen in their life for God to sort of stop, pause, and say, look at this. Even though it's only two verses, it actually has so much for us. So Jabez, his little, these little two verses about his life are like what one commentator called an oasis in the graveyard or the wilderness of the dead. It's like a little, little spot of life. And what I want to do is sit with his story. I want to talk a little bit about his pain. I want to look at some other pieces of art and sort of engage it and sort of reflect on it and hopefully listen for the Lord through it. So let's read this together. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along, First Chronicles 4. Also, um, Bible app, or if you want to just follow in the handout there. It says, again, we're just going to read through these two verses it, concerning Jabez. It says, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, his name is Jabez because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, and that your hand would be with me, and that you would indeed keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. Interesting prayer. So God granted him what he asked for, what he requested. So what we're basically given here is this thumb, thumbnail sketch of this man named Jabez. And we're told two things in that ninth verse. Do you see it? We talked about it last week. Two things are immediately said about this man. One, he excelled above his brethren. That is, he was someone who was an achiever in his generation. He's someone who's to be noted, remembered. That's what the Bible is saying. He was more honorable in that regard. He stands out. He emerges from the relief. But two, we also notice something else. If you look at that ninth verse, you notice that he had an ignominious beginning. What we mean by that is that he starts out clearly, is implied, unloved, unwanted, or at least less loved, 
Notice his name. We're told what it means. Jabez means sorrow, one who brings sorrow, one who brings pain. His mother named him sorrow. His birth was a source of pain for her. We're not sure why, but what we do know is that he begins his life with a stigma. Now, names meant even more back then than they do even now. A person often would name their child, um, a family would, a, a parent would. In this case, there's not even a mention of the father, which is suggestive in a highly patriarchal culture to have no father there. And it does open up some things to consider. And she, she names him Sorrow. And so he begins with this, I don't know, I, don't, I want to call it like a curse almost. I mean, he, those names, it, they, meant, they were either aspirations a lot of times or an expression of a condition at the moment. And so when she calls him sorrow, it, it, it really does give him a kind of identity from the very beginning. He starts with a disadvantage, a kind of handicap, a mark against him. He's in the hole from the start, a man with a wound. And he could have so easily been defined by that wound. It's kind of what the Bible, I think, is implying that he could have lived his life like a victim, uh, you know, nourished his hurt, nourished his offense. He could have embraced it, which always will happen when we, when we embrace our wound and cling to it. We perpetuate it, sorrow. He could have very easily lived with a low grade of, of uh, bitterness and resentment. Let that that hurt fully define him, obliterate him in a way. But instead, we're told in verse 10, and look at this, it says that there was a point in his life where he made a decision that he begins to call upon God, a time when he prayed and he asked God specifically to intervene in his behalf. Notice, what does he say? Firstly, oh, that you would bless me. So somewhere in his life, this man who starts in so much pain because of a wound that was inflicted in a way upon him, Somewhere along the way, he begins to turn to God, and out of his disadvantage, he begins to cry unto the Lord, oh, that you would bless me. That is, he asks for a blessing. So the one who starts with a deficit asks God to make a deposit on his behalf. And he says, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. He prays for expansion, extension of my lands, my borders, holdings, influence, reach. Let me, let me Lord, be blessed. So in his pain, he turns to God, and he makes this prayer. He draws to the Lord and he makes an appeal. And here's the thing that reminded me very early on that when, when things happen in life, and they will, that are hurtful or unfair or painful, I think it's important for us, I just wanted to say this from the very beginning, when things happen that aren't good or that aren't fair, that don't seem just or just honestly tear our hearts apart, it's important when life deals with something like that to resist a couple of things, and one of them is this, to resist pushing God away in these times of pain or loss and making God our enemy. I know it's a strong word, but it can happen. And we start to blame God. Like, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you stop this? I mean, there's a lot of things. We've had a lot of discussions like this over the years. I had one recently with someone, and I was hearing their hurt, and I said, I get it, I understand. I said, but can I say one thing from the very beginning? I said, remember, God is on your side. He deeply loves you. Whatever else has happened here, remember this. You will never lose by drawing closer towards him. Turn towards him, not away. 
Don't push God away. He's given everything. He gave himself. He entered into wounding for us, right? So one is be careful when, when we're hurting or when we've been hurt about making God, pushing him away. The other thing to be really careful about, and again, Jabez's account really suggests this as well, be careful about becoming bitter, all right? Be careful about allowing kind of um, this anger to start to set in and to become resentful, to hold. There's always that temptation to hold on to our pain, like I said, and let it define us. I was thinking about it, you know, the idea of anger and bitterness and how Jabez, he had a choice to make in his life. He was either gonna, he was either gonna just sort of let that, that sorrow define him or he, did, or he was gonna do what he did, which is model how to, how to allow God to take something that is bad and actually ask the Lord to help him in a significant way. And it got my mind thinking about uh, a story, a book that some of us may have read, certainly we've probably seen the musical or watched the film. But I found myself reflecting on, as I was thinking about Jabez and how the temptation would be to get stuck in his anger and what was given to him. And how he could have, he had to make a choice. And I thought, it reminded me of the story or the musical Les Miserables. And I've always been very moved, and some of you have been here for a while, you know, I've always been impressed by Victor Hugo's uh, character, Jean Valjean. I know not all of us have necessarily seen it, but many, perhaps a lot of us have seen the musical. It's powerful, very emotive. Uh, there was actually a, f a couple of films that have been done over the last 20 years. The last one that was done was, what did I get, in 2014, it was a musical. Uh, I think Hugh Jack Jackman plays uh, Jean Valjean. Um, and uh, one of my favorite actors uh, played another character in the film. Again, it was a musical. Russell Crowe played in, was in that film. And honestly, he's an amazing actor, but he does not have the gift of singing. That was not his gift, that, I will tell you that. Um, but, but the film, that was a version of the musical itself. And um, the, the other film that was made years before, like in 1998, started Liam Neeson. And, he really portrayed beautifully. It was more drama. It portrayed, it attempted to portray uh, Jean Valjean, the character that Hugo creates. And this is a very um, Christ-like, in the way that it, it presents the gospel, as it were. Because uh, if you, some of us, again, may have a, a memory of it. I don't want to assume we do. But the, the musical is fantastic. It sort of condenses it down. Music is powerful. The films are good. The, the musical film was good. It, it told the story. But it lost something of the layer and the texture. I mean, Le Miserable is a big book. Look at that. That's 1,200 pages. That's no tiny one. Now, you can also read the condensed one, which is 300 pages, right? <laughs> OK. But the point being, in the book, some of us remember what happens to this. Again, I was thinking about Jabez, and I'm thinking about Jean Valjean, the character that Hugo creates brilliantly in 1862. And the main character, if you remember how the book opens, some of, some of us may, is fairly early on, what happens is he's been treated so unfairly. There's the connection. Right? He's been imprisoned. Why? For breaking in, honestly, he breaks into a bakery. He's trying to get some bread. And he breaks into a bakery, and he gets, he gets sentenced into the galleys. I mean, he gets hot, hard labor for breaking in, stealing a loaf of bread. And so what happens is, as a, year, a couple of years go by, he tries to escape. And eventually, 
he ends up staying in that place an astonishing 19 years. I mean, oh, I'm just going to read it, read something to you. Here we go. In the abridged version, okay? Here we go. Just listen. It says, so now at the end of his fourth year, his chance of liberty came to Jean Valjean. So he's in prison. His comrades helped him as they always do in the dreary place, and he escaped. During the evening of the second day, he was retaken. He had neither eaten nor slept for 36 hours. The maritime tribunal extended his sentence three years for the attempt, which made his total eight. In the sixth year, his turn of escape came again, and he tried it, but failed again. He did not answer at roll call, and an alarm cannon was fired. At night, the people of the vicinity discovered him hidden beneath the keel of a vessel on the stocks. He resisted the galley guard, which seized him. Escape and resistance. This, the provisions of the special code, punished by an addition of five years, two with the double chain, 13 years, the 10th year his turn came, came oh boy, says 13th year came again, and he made another attempt with no better success, three years for this new attempt, 16 years, and finally, I think it was in the 13th year, he made yet another and was retaken after an absence of only four hours, three years for those four hours, 19 years. In October 1815, he was set at large. He had entered in 1796 for having broken a pane of glass and taken a loaf of bread. 19 years. Jean Valjean entered the galleys sobbing and shuddering. He went out hardened. He entered in despair. He went out sullen. I asked him, I said, can you put the, the, um, the quotation from the original version and check it out what it says? Look at this. It says, from year to year, his soul had dried away slowly, but with fatal sureness. When the Look at what Hugo, the inside. See, he says, when the heart is dry, the eye is dry. And on the departure from the galleys, it had been 19 years since he had shed a tear. I mean, the power of fiction, by the way. I love nonfiction. I love history. I love biography. I love, but when you get wonder, good fiction, it's not just the story. It's the reflection and the life and the observation and the understanding. And when it's woven in properly, it creates, it creates an opening for us to appreciate things in different ways, to say things in different ways. Notice how Hugo is saying this. He's saying that when you can't even cry, when you're so hard, you can't even cry. He goes, for 19 years, not a, not a tear came from this man. It was so hard. He has seen and felt and experienced so much that he had become hard. And it's like a perfect picture, right? And but, so when he comes out of, the, out of the prison, out of the galleys, out of those 19 years for started by, if it, it all started by stealing a piece of bread, 19 years at 25, right? That's the picture. He comes out, he goes in, and he, by the time he comes out, he's seething on the inside. He's angry. There's a deep wound inside him. There's like, he's bitter. How angry is he at the situation, his treatment, his plight? And the book goes into all the things that he experiences and he watches, the inhumanity, the feelings of the violence, the, what it did to him, what it took away from him, the unfairness of it all. It's all there, right? He, and so when he gets out, something happens to him. And in the book, it's, again, I look at it and I go, wow, this is like Jabez. He, he, what happens is, some of you know the story, what happens is, 
He gets out. He's an ex-con. Nobody wants to touch him. They're afraid of him. Plus, the truth is, they should be afraid of him. But there's this bishop, a priest, who decides that he wants to embrace him. And he invites him to stay. And actually, it's very touching. But when he's there, what happens is he starts, Valjean starts wrestling with himself. And he feels like, I still got to take care of myself. And so what he notices is that the priest has this silverware. Probably the most valuable thing the bishop has is this silverware that he has, forks and knives and settings. And Valjean decides that, you know what, in the night I'm going to wake up, I'm going to steal it, and I'm going to take, take off. If, if he gets in my way, I'll, 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 I'll push him down, and I'll do what I have to do, but I'm taking that and I'm going. And he decides he's going to steal it. He does, and he flees into the night. Well, what happens is he's caught by some guards who just notice him, and when they notice him, they, they, yeah, he's moving fastly and he's suspicious. They look and he's got all this silverware. They said, where did you get all this from? It's expensive. They said, he says, uh, uh, it, it was given to me by the priest. By the priest, he gave it to me to have. And they didn't believe him. They took him back. We'll find out. They bring him in. That's the scene that gets said. He walks in the door and he's looking at the priest and he knows the bishop and he knows, oh man, I stole from this man. All he did was good to me. I took it, the best that he had. I'm in so much trouble. The guards are sure he's lying. You stole that. We know you did. They get there and they say, hey, we found this man. He says, you gave him this silver. And the priest, the bishop, the goodly bishop, looks at him. He says, you forgot the candlesticks. And he goes, and he gets the two silver candlesticks that will be with him to the end of his day. And he says, here, my friend, you forgot these. It's a beautiful moment. He tells the guards, go, you can leave. And there's just Valjean hanging there, dumbfounded. Okay. I will read something. Here we go. Just real quick. Okay, just stay with me on this one. This is it's so quick. All right. Jean Valjean felt like a man who was just about to faint. The bishop approached him and said in a low voice, forget not, never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of this promise, stood confounded. The bishop had laid much stress upon these words as he uttered them, and then he continued solemnly, Jean Valjean, and look, I love the way Hugo cried, Jean Valjean, my brother, Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdrew, I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Powerful, it's beautiful. And in that moment, I'm telling you, one of the things about this is that you, you realize at that moment that, that, that something breaks inside of Jean Valjean. He, because he's never, that's one of the most beautiful expressions of grace I think has ever been written. It's a good example, as we'll ever read. It's a, oh, and did you notice? Think about this, how Hugo sets it up. Jesus is betrayed by Judas for. 30 pieces of silver. 
And he uses the silver as a means of redeeming Valjean. It's a beautiful juxtaposition. I look at that and I go, oh, the bishop's act of love and grace. You know what it does? It breaks him. It breaks him towards God. It is the spark that sets his life. It's when faith comes alive inside of Valjean. All of a sudden, he changes. He changes. There's real change. He becomes a very different man. He starts thinking of himself differently in the eyes of God. He all of a sudden decides that he is going to be a, a person who's going to bless. He prospers. He prays. The same kind of thing that happens to Jabez happens to Valjean. He prays. He asks God for influence. All of a sudden, resources and property. All of a sudden, at a certain point, he actually becomes a mayor of a city. And, start, and, this is, and by the way, it's only the front part of the book. There's, another, there's a whole other part. It's pretty amazing as well. But in this front section, he ends up becoming the mayor, and he's a blesser. Like, he blesses people. He, in fact, when you read it and you watch it, and that's one of the reasons why I love the one film version of the drama, because there's a, such a Christ-likeness, a sacrificial beauty of love and grace. And when you watch it through that lens, it affects your heart a little bit. And so, if I can put it this way, what we're being reminded of, instead, remember I talked about what we need to resist? Let me, let me suggest this. Instead of when we are going through hard things or unfair things or we feel stigmatized or unjustly treated or we've experienced deep loss, whatever it is, one of the things I want to suggest is, and here, I'll just put it up there, make, don't, don't push God away. Instead, make him our ally. Make him our ally. He is now here. I put that poem that I wrote last week, and we just put it in the handout there just to be able to refer to it. He is now here. And then secondly, instead of becoming bitter, which we can do, we can do it in our own way, we choose in Christ to become better. So again, number two, instead of becoming bitter, become better. Find reasons to be grateful. Ah, Where am I going to focus? Where's the focus going to be? Choose to be more optimistic, at least more hopeful, smile, uh, laugh every now and then. You know, again, go back to what, he, what Hugo wrote about Valjean. He, his heart was so dry, his tears were dry. I think it was Hugo would write this, he would say the statement, laughter is sunshine, it chases winter from the human face. <laughs> laughter is sunshine. It chases winter from the human face. Something about that. We will always have our reasons to become negative because the hurts of life are manifold. That is, sorrows do abound. On this side of the garden, listen, part of life is thorn and thistle. Part of life is lost. There is some disappointment in it. It's true. There's a lot of beauty, a lot of beauty, a lot of good, a lot of good. But in some, there's also some tough stuff, hard stuff, painful stuff. Right? I, was, I was thinking about this I was, because one of the reasons I was thinking about it was I was reading, <laughs> I was actually reading about Billy Graham. Remember, some of you have heard me talk about it. I was, I was thinking about loss, and I was going, I remember him talking about Billy Graham, who just died. I respect this man so much into his, into his mid-90s, early 90s. He, didn't think, he says he didn't think he was going, he, didn't, he thought he was going to die young, so he never, he never prepared. He said, I never prepared myself for the possibility that I would grow old. Because I just assumed I was going to, because of the way I had to live my life, that I was never going to make it to old age. So I wasn't ready for it when it happened. He goes, I, I, I knew how to die, but I didn't know how to grow old. 
Because he says, what happened is, he started, I started noticing things being lost to me. Now, I know some of us are young in, younger in life. We're in our 20s, 30s, 40s. See, I put a wide range of what could be young. <laughs> um, others of, you know, and, and, and that's a period there where we can't experience loss. I'm not suggesting we can't. But we don't usually think as much about our mortality, uh, about that part of life, about the promise of Jesus and what it means to have eternal life. I mean, we do. We might think about it, but it's, it, it's like we assume we're going to live longer, which is why we're shocked when people die, we say, die young. But a lot of times in that period in life, we're also very tired people. I mean, especially those of you, when you're young, if you have a young family, it's just nonstop. You know, my wife and I had four children. They're all adults now. But um, the, I remember that period. We were tired a lot all the time. But then you get these period where you're in your 50s and 60s a little bit and things change. You start to notice things differently. And again, I'm making a generalization, but it's true. You start, for those that I've talked to that move into their 70s and 80s, life's really shifting around. By the time someone gets into their 90s, they have to confront certain realities. And what I appreciated about Graham, and I'll, this is the, I know I'm reading a lot of stuff. I am reading all kinds. Let me read this to you, all right? This is what he says. He says, I'm not, again, because we're talking about loss. I'm not exactly sure when it happened, but as the years passed, it gradually dawned on me that I was growing older. Middle age, I had to admit, was fading into the distance. And I was rapidly approaching what we politely call the mature years. Sometimes my age showed itself in small, even humorous ways, the occasional embarrassment of forgetting a good friend's name, the reluctant awareness that most of the people I saw on the airplane or passed in the street were looking extremely young to me, the experience of having a server in a restaurant give me the senior discount before asking if I qualified. <laughs> but it also revealed itself in larger, more serious ways, a slow, but ex a slow decline in energy, illnesses that easily could have ended in disability or even death, the obvious aging and even death of people I had known most of my life. They were all dying. My wife, Ruth's brave but difficult struggles as the years passed, and she grew increasingly frail. I began relating to stories I heard from others. Most of my middle-aged patients are in denial, a doctor said to one of my associates. They think they will always be able to play strenuous sports or travel anywhere they want or continue working 12 hours a day. They just assume if something goes wrong, I'll be able to fix it. But one day they're going to wake up and discover they can't do everything they once did. Someday <laughs> they'll be old, and they won't like it because they aren't emotionally prepared for it. Graham says this, I couldn't truthfully say that I have liked growing older, because I haven't. At times I wish I could still do everything I once did, but I can't. I wish I didn't have to face the infirmities and uncertainties that seem to be part of this stage of life, but I do. Don't get old, I've said with tongue in cheek to more than one person in recent years, but of course that is not an option. Old age is inevitable if we live long enough. And then he spends a lot of time talking about how to age gracefully and how God can actually use these years, these latter years in our lives in ways that maybe sometimes we're, we're not anticipating. He says, but everything depends on how we approach it. He talks a lot about that. He talks a lot about attitude. He talks about reminding ourselves that if God allows us to have any stage of life that we have it, he has a purpose in that stage of our life. 
You talked about the need to keep growing as a person, not to simply say, well, I'm retired now, and I, so I don't need to grow as a person anymore. He talks about how God wants us. He, he said, um, he sort of implied this, the phrase that I've come to recognize it as, change is inevitable, growth is optional. We get to decide that. We get to decide our attitudes. I look at Jabez, and I go, wow. It's also true when it comes to relationships. And when you think about loss and hurt in life, which was Graham was reflecting on partly, he, he, and he was saying, don't let that define you. Even stuff that you, he goes, look, even, even growing old, you get to choose. But, some of the, but I was thinking about pain and hurt, and some of the most painful things that we will experience in life are relational. Because when we love somebody, like even, even Jesus talked about how my own familiar friend lifted up his heel against me. I wonder if Jabez, think about this. Jabez, <laughs> think about it. What the, some of the most difficult pain is when someone who should have loved us didn't love us well. And in Jabez's case, it's like I can imagine him saying, Mother, Mom, why did you call me? Why did you name me this? Why, why did you call me sorrow? Why do you call me pain? What did I do? What was wrong with me? What do you, why? Right? You can, you can feel it. It's like, why would you do that? Few things are as painful as someone who should have loved us better. And when they, when they don't honor that love, and, right? And, and I, I look at Jabez, and I go, he knew relational pain. Now, who knows? Again, I talked about it. Who knows why his mother named? Maybe she was in physical pain. More likely, his, his birth was not a blessing to her. To him, it wasn't. And she saw in this boy something she didn't want. Uh, Maybe she was just passing down what had been passed down to her. We call that generational transference. I think a lot of us are aware. I hope we understand this. And it's not an excuse. It's not. But hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And that's one of the reasons why God wants to heal us of stuff. So that we don't just send that down the line. Jabez, somewhere along the way, out of his hurt, out of his wound, he turned towards God. And, and for one last time, I want us to look at that 10th verse again. And look at the back, bottom side of it. Look what he prays. Look what he prays. After he starts out with the, oh, bless me, he says, I ask, Lord, that your hand would be with me. I pray for your hand to be with me. It was an appeal for presence and favor. We might call it grace today. That you would be my advocate. That you would make a way for me. It was like, Jabez says, I cannot change how I started, but I look to you, God. I ask that your hand would be with me. Oh, that your hand would be with me. And then the bottom of that, after he asked for blessing and expansion and the Lord's hand to be with him, I looked and I go, oh, and the one that hit me the most was the next phrase. And oh, that you would, you would keep me, look at this, keep me from evil. And do not allow me to bring pain. Do you see it? The one whose name is pain, who is named after that sorrow, says, Lord, do not let me be a pain bringer. No, as you prosper me, as you bless me, and I ask you for it, would you in turn give me the capacity to honor that? We see it all the time in the culture, how power can be abused. We're seeing it, how it happens all the time, right? If there's not a mooring point, prosperity is not always a blessing. 
can actually damage people. He's praying this wonderful prayer. He's saying, God, I ask for a blessing that I don't deserve. I ask for you to open up things for me. He turns towards God, not away. He says, Lord, make a way for me. Make a way. Let your hand be with me. And then I ask you, God, that as you do it, as you do it, let me, Lord, also honor you in my life. Let me, he asks for purity. He asks for purity. And let me, let me be a blesser and not a pain bringer. Wow. Don't let me disappoint you, myself, or the people that I've been given a love. Let, let, me, let me not be this. Let me succeed and not bring pain, but bring life and blessing. This is what I want. I ask you for it. Help me. I, I, I thought about another request from a broken and humbled man. Another one. In Psalm 51, it's where we'll close. Look what it says. Created me a clean heart. Oh, God, David said, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me. Here's the word that I just clung, clung on to. Uphold me with your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. In other words, Lord, let your generosity be made known to me, and I will let it be known to others in your name. You see that? How good is that? Do you know what that, that goes all the way back? That's Jabez's prayer. That's his prayer. It's like, generous, Lord, be generous to me, but then let me take that spirit of generosity and pour it out. You know what? The name of our series is Spark. You know what God wants us to do? Sparkle, right? He wants us to be spark, sparky people for him. If I can use that term. He wants our light to shine. Let your light so shine before people, before men, that they may see your good works, the goodness of your life, and then glorify God. Not, not just go, oh, you're a wonderful person, but go, there's something real about God because of what I see happening in your life. Lord, may I not be a pain bringer, but a blesser. Bless me, and in that blessing, give me the strength to manage that in a way that is life-giving to others and not destroy my own heart. Get me stuck in places I don't want to go. I don't want to bring pain. I want to bring blessing. Sorrow, the man named Sorrow says, I don't want to bring pain. I want to be a blesser. And that's what God wants to do in all of our lives. He really does. How good is that? Yeah. Huh. Let's pray together, all right? So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you because you will meet us where we are if we come to you with honesty in our hearts. And I thank you that, Lord, you know our wounds. You know our hurts. There's nothing hidden. You know the unfairness. That's that part. We can't control that. But we can trust you. We can welcome you. We can, we, can, we can draw near to you. We can appeal to you. We can bring our prayer to you, Lord. We, we can call upon your name and ask for your hand to be with us. And as you bless us, Lord, also give us the strength to manage that blessing so that our success doesn't destroy us. So Jabez prayed, Lord. Help me to have purity in my heart, lest, lest I do evil and undermine the very blessing itself. Help me to use what I am blessed with for, your, for blessing others. Do not allow me to be a pain bringer. Help me, strengthen me, teach me your ways to strengthen my capacity to have generosity, even as you have been generous to me, Lord. So I pray this blessing. Bless this, bless this word. Let this, the song that we close with sort of be an accent point on it. And just remind us as we go our ways into the rest of this day and week that that you're calling us, Lord, to remind ourselves always of how much we've been loved and how you want to heal the most broken places and how you can turn them into strengths. Just remind us to be blessers, not pain bringers, blessers. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen.